welcome to this week's episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. Andrew Hunter Murray is off on his hollybobs, sailing the seven seas, looking for new, unbeknownst species of moss. And while he is away, we have got a guest for you, and that guest is none other than Anne Miller. Of course, you know Anne. She's one of the QIL. She's a really good friend of ours, and it's great to have her back. One thing you really need to know about Anne, especially in these weeks upcoming to Christmas, is that she is also a published author. She has written a series of children's books. They are known as Mickey and the Animal Spies. They're known as that because that is their name. And they're absolutely brilliant. Uh, My daughter absolutely loves looking at the pictures. And I'm sure when she gets to the right age, she will enjoy reading them as well. While we're on the subject of books, of course, it would be remiss of me not to mention our book, mine and Anna's new book, Everything to Play For, the QI Book of Sport. Uh, Definitely buy that for your loved ones for Christmas. Anyone who likes sport, definitely buy it for them. If you don't like sport, but you like what we do, I promise you'll love this book because it's full of loads of interesting human stories, drama. It's the ultimate sports book for people who don't really like sports. And also people who do like sports will like it as well. It's for everyone. That's the great thing about our book. But then that also has to be true of Andy and Dan's books. You definitely should go and get those as well. Dan's book is called The Theory of Everything Else. It's a brilliant look into his brain, his unique brain, let's say, but um, he's looked at the history of people who had done otherwise great things, but deep down they had a dark secret of believing some weird shit. And speaking of weird shit, you should also have a look at Andy's books. Andrew Hunter Murray, he has two books. They're called The Sanctuary and The Last Day. They're both brilliant acerbic dystopian books that tell you something about the modern day while thrilling you with an incredible story about the future. They're absolutely amazing. You've got to get those as well basically what i'm saying is who doesn't love a book for christmas and there's a ton of them made by your favorite qi elves they're all available online and mine anna's dan's and andy's you can find at nosesingsafish.com forward slash books One more very, very important thing I need to say before I leave you in peace to listen to the podcast is that we do have a couple of live shows coming up just before Christmas. They will take place in London on Thursday the 7th and Friday the 8th of December at the Soho Theatre. Now, we've already mentioned this to the Clubfish members and I think it's been on social media. So the truth is there are not many tickets left. If you do want to come and see this show, literally pause now and go to nosuchthingsafish.com forward slash live, click on the link, and check if there are any tickets left. You never know, sometimes extra tickets do come up closer to the date, so do go and check there anyway, and hopefully see some of you there for our Christmas shows. Anyway, thank you so much for getting to the end of this without fast-forwarding. If you have fast-forwarded and got to here without hearing the last bit, shame on you. But anyway, it's time for our podcast with Anne Miller, so there is nothing more to say apart from on with the podcast. And welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Hoburn. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, James Harkin, and Anne Miller. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that a list of adorable things written over a thousand years ago includes 
chicks who look like their clothes are too big for them and faces drawn on melons. <laughs> okay, can I ask for definitions of chicks and melons? Because <laughs> I live in the 1990s. Right. Um, both chicks and melons mean what they've meant in every decade outside of the 1990s. Right. Um, I'm afraid uh, baby chickens yeah. and fruit. James okay. just friendly wow. destroying all his notes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, people are writing about adorable things a thousand years ago. That's yeah, weird. this was. Yeah. I actually heard this reference on Radio Four this week, so I'm sure there are people who also heard it mentioned. It's the Pillow Book, which is this extraordinary book written by a woman in Japan in the 10th century and the um, Heian period. And Heian. Hi. <laughs> That's why we chose this. <laughs> God, it took me a long time to find a high Anne period fact. <laughs> um, anyway, this um, <clears throat> this woman basically wrote a diary of just random stuff that popped into her head of mm. lists and observations and things she thought should happen and shouldn't happen and things people should wear and shouldn't wear. And one of them was, here's a list of really cute things. And one of them was faces drawn on melons. One of them was chicks who look like their clothes are too big, which I think is like if you see a chick, but it's... Feathers look like they're a bit swollen. Oh, you know, okay. they look. Oh, I thought they might like you dress them up in human clothes. That's what I thought. That's cute. I, I, that would be even cuter. Mm. From what I could tell from interpretations of it, I think they're just talking about chicks who look like they don't fit into their clothes yet. Right. Yeah. They're too small. But I, I would argue that's slightly less cute than like a hat and dungarees. Yeah. Well, take Agreed. it up with, say, Shonagan, <laughs> the author of this book. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe she hadn't thought of that. The good thing about this book is, and I'm sure you all found this reading it, it's just like someone is writing today, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just like lists of cute things. So one is a young palace page obviously that's not the thing anymore but a young palace page who is still quite small and walks by in ceremonial costume and that's just like you know if you go to a wedding and you see a little yeah. you know, page toddler a, a page boy in a suit yeah, yeah it's true yeah. but it's it's not all happy stuff is it like there's so many great pissed off lists things like things that are unpleasant to hear someone who has an ugly voice yet speaks and laughs without restraint so she has a list for that wow. she has a list for things that give a pathetic impression the voice of someone who blows his nose while he is speaking. Uh, <laughs> the impression of a woman plucking her eyebrows. Wow. It's, it's all so odd. My favourite random one in there is the list of extremely frightening things. Do you guys oh, yeah. know this? Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't see that. Thunder. Yeah, fair okay. enough. And then I just enjoy this one. Um, extremely frightening thing. When a thief has entered the house next door, one is extremely frightened. If he breaks into the, if he breaks into the house where one is actually living... <laughs> <laughs> if he breaks into the house where one is actually living one loses consciousness and knows nothing more <laughs> which is true that, that's true so i think some of these they sound like stand-up routines yeah it's exactly. like i've found one which is things that are infuriating which sounds like it's like a josh widdicombe routine yeah. mm -hmm. says this is what's infuriating someone suddenly falls ill and an exorcist is sent for they don't find him in the usual place and a tedious amount of time is spent waiting while they go around in search of him finally they manage to locate him and with great relief you see him to performing the exorcism rites however the recent 
constant exertions of exercising some other possessing spirit <laughs> seem to have worn him out. For no sooner does he sit down and start in on the chanting than his spirit seems to have worn him out. His voice goes drowsy and that is utterly infuriating. I think... It's so relatable, isn't it? It's yeah, so good. My note for Josh, maybe broaden it a tiny bit. <laughs> I like the idea this is the hey, what about airplane food of yeah. like a thousand years ago. It really is. Like there's a list, rare things. A silver tweezer that is good at plucking out the hair. This is today. It is. You can't get tweezers that pluck out hairs well. How have they not designed this in the last thousand years? It's basically shots miscellany, isn't it? Because it is list, but it's also essays sometimes or diaries. Yeah, diary entries, observations. So this is just to put it into the period. I know everyone probably knows the years of the high end period, but uh, do you refresh my memory? (laughs) (laughs) We're talking the year one thousand is what's going on here. And uh, at the time that she was writing this book, Beowulf was being written. Also, Mm. just to put in context, the other great pieces of literature. It's relatable. Beowulf. No, no, that's true. I haven't actually read it, so well, I... the first word in it, we still don't know what it means. Oh, really? <laughs> I think so. Wow. Oh, really? Yeah. Do we, what, what, can you say the word? Do you know it? Or it's it? like what? Or, right. Yeah, there's arguments about what it means. Yeah. Um, and she was... So she was working in the court of the Empress at the time. She was like a lady-in-waiting who was always there. And she basically wrote this book because she just had a lot of spare time with nothing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she never intended it for publication. It was just a personal book that she was writing. Um, we don't even properly know her name. So she's mm-hmm. called Sei Shonagun. But that's... that's Shonagun is the title that you're given. It's a minor counsellor. And oh. Say is the name that was added later, which refers to her father's name. So you can distinguish her from the other Shonaguns oh, who were in part of the court. So do we think it could be Josh Widdicombe gone back in time <laughs> to the Haiyan period? <laughs> it's maybe? possible. Say Shonagun does sound like a Japanese version of Josh Widdicombe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the word Haiyan means peace in Japanese. Oh, yeah. Because uh, it was particularly, it was quite a long period and it was a time where there wasn't much war going on so people had time to write these stand-up routines. Yeah. <laughs> That's why she was so bored. I reckon she craved a war. Do we think she was a bit of a, a bit of a bitch? Was she? What? Well, I mean, just from what she wrote. Well, like adorable things. Give us some examples. I mean, no, depends the... on which list you're reading. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think she had um, mean qualities. In fact, there was a story about her where one of her neighbours' houses burned down and they lost everything they owned. Mm. The fire in the house next door is the most scary. <laughs> yeah. Thank God it wasn't in her house. <laughs> well, I don't know how scary she was finding it because basically she wrote a kind of little note mocking this person right he's lost everything he's standing outside his house you know naked and gives it to her mum and says hey go give this note taking the piss out of this guy to him um okay she had what was effectively a lot of people claim was a rival i don't think we fully know that Mm -hmm. but uh it is someone who is friend of the podcast murasaki shikibu who wrote uh, and we mentioned in episode 63 of Fish, The, the Tale, Tale of, of Genji. Genji. Yeah. yeah, the yeah. first ever novel, which finished mid-sentence, right? Like, it just cuts off. Um, yeah. What happened was is that Sei Shonagun was working for this empress, and at the time it was one emperor, one empress. That's how it worked. But they, they bucked the trend with this one, and suddenly she was no longer the exclusive empress. So he got married again, and the lady-in-waiting who became uh, the lady-in-waiting for the next lady was uh, this person, The Tale of Genji. No way. Yeah. Yeah, really? so that's why they were kind of like in, in rival land, according to certain historians. Um, so that book, The Tale of Genji by Murasaki, has a word, kawaiushi, mm. uh, which is the word which turned into the modern day word kawaii. 
mm. uh, which means cute yep. in Japanese. Mm-hmm. And this idea of, you know, lots of cute animals and, uh, you know, Hello Kitty and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, this is kind of a 20th century thing that we're not sure exactly. There's lots of reasons why it might have come about, but possibly a reaction to the war, to the bombs, stuff like that. People wanted to go from the horrors of war to cuteness, mm. uh, but definitely seems to have become popular when mechanical pencils came out. So, you know, those pencils yeah. that kind of... You know, you twist them and the lead yeah. comes out. Hmm. Twist they, them? Do you not click them? There's or the two one options. Where you, or the one where you take the little one out and put it in the top? Do you remember them from primary uh, school? There's so many different no. ways. No. Hang on, you had to... There was a little pocket <laughs> no, containing lead. Inside the, where like, the lead would go, they were like tiny little things and you'd pop one at the bottom and pop it in the top to save you sharpening your pencil. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I, hate, I hated them all because they write so horribly. So Well, they were very popular them. in 1970s <laughs> Japan where you would not have fit in. No. Um, because they could write very, very thin lines mm-hmm. and it inspired a kind of writing uh, among teenage girls where they would put like lots of little hearts and little mm. um, you know characters and stuff in their writing mm. uh, and it was so popular and it made the writing so difficult to read that it was banned in loads mm. of schools right. basically really? you weren't allowed to write in this kawaii style wow. but by then the the trend had already taken a hold I guess once you've started doing it it sort of becomes your hand like there were some people who would do like proper circles over their eye or like little hearts. hearts. Yes, and I was like, why? It takes yeah. so much longer. I was just going to ask, Anne, were you a heart above no. the eye kind of person? <laughs> I barely dot my eyes. <laughs> Your eyes are just a line. You don't yes. have time for that dot. <laughs> and, but it's not, I was reading a sort of paper on it saying it's not as cutesy as maybe our version of cute. Like mm. it's got a bit of an edge. Okay. So Kawaii cute. The kawaii cute, yeah, the Japanese cute, which you can kind of see. There's sometimes a bit of a dark edginess Mm -hmm. to it. There's a character called Gloomy the Naughty Grizzly, who I hadn't come across, but um, apparently is a big cultural phenomenon. And he's a two-metre-tall, like, cuddly bear, but he's very violent. He's covered in blood quite a lot of the time. Uh, He attacks his owner quite a lot. And that's kawaii in Japan, but not necessarily something we would say was cute. I think that's like kimo kawaii, so it's like grotesque and cute at the same time. Mm. I think that's what they call it. And yeah, obviously they have loads of uh, mascots, don't they, Mm. in Japan? Yeah. Um, In 2015, the governor of Osaka complained that he couldn't recognise most of his prefecture's mascots. They had 92 of them. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) In Osaka alone. Uh, And he ordered a cull. And 20 of his characters were... Oh, wow. Murdered by the grizzly bear. (laughs) Public executions, I hope. See, but Jiggy made a list, like, 20 mascots that really annoy me, and then... (laughs) It's amazing how successful it was, though. You know how when governments try to be cool, um, you know, like David Cameron saying he supports Aston Villa or whatever, and it's Mm. just massive cringe. Mm. But the Japanese government, basically, in the 90s, did, like, Cool Japan, which Mm. was a bit like we had Cool Britannia here. Yeah. And um, Cool Japan was the idea of exporting all the... Japanese cultural stuff yeah. and I don't know how they did it but they nailed it because it's so popular now isn't it you get people who are really into manga really into those styles Hello Kitty is a global phenomenon Hello Kitty yeah. but like yeah. in the Cool Britannia was like Blair versus Oasis and do you think in Japan now kids are listening to What's the Starry Morning Glory 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's still Blur and Oasis. Is there. It? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's not resolved. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on, but are Blur and Oasis popular? There? I think not you started now. by saying that. Not anymore. Damn, it'd be great if they were, because that would be my cultural homeland. That's when I stopped learning about pop music, was in about 1998. Yeah, wouldn't it yeah. be great if there was like a little museum somewhere where you could go and they're still listening to all your kind of, it's Blur called Smooth voices. FM. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, cuteness is a funny thing, isn't it? Um, and we are the cutest of the primates. Hmm. So that's nice. Official. We self-proclaimed. Official. I guess it is self-proclaimed because we're the only yeah. ones that can write about it. Were any of the bonobos allowed to vote in this? <laughs> Screw you, gorillas. You can't read. You can't define what's cute. So what's kind of defined as cute yeah. is the traits that are common in infants. And that is, it was actually defined by this guy called Conrad Lorenz, who won a Nobel Prize. Um, it's called the Kinder Schema. Mm. And it's a large brain capsule, as he puts it. Big forehead, I think yeah. we'll call it. Large and low-lying eyes, bulging cheeks, short and thick extremities, a springy, elastic consistency, and clumsy movements, which is like the ugliest way to describe what is actually a really adorable cute yeah. image. <laughs> oh, wasn't there? There was a thing I read a while ago about about animals who found those cute, like an elephant, like caressing people, and like, they think like, "Oh, you're just so cute and small." <laughs> it was really lovely. I don't know if I want to be caressed by an elephant. You know, of all the animals that could caress me, <laughs> it may not. I think it was an elephant. I feel like I have the trunk involved. That yeah. sounds like. They're quite empathetic elephants, aren't yeah. they? One of the scariest things is an elephant caressing next door's baby. <laughs> absolutely terrifying. Um, there was a study done in 2009, and this was, they gave people a load of cute images, mm. and then they asked them to play the game Operation. So you know where you have like a plastic yeah. uh, body, and you have to pull out the funny bone and yeah, stuff yeah. Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't buzz. Well, it turned out that anyone who'd been exposed to high cuteness stimuli was better at operation. Ah. So first of all, a tip for Christmas, if you go home and someone's got operation, have a quick look at some kawaii stuff before yeah, you play and it'll help. Tip. Yeah. Um, but secondly, it's due to extreme carefulness. And the idea is you've seen lots of cute things. You mm. want to look after them ah. almost and you want to be more careful. Right. That's but don't... Like look at the bloodied bear because that might give you the impression that blood all over your operation human is going to be <laughs> yeah. adorable adorable I like yeah. that you had like 4D operation as a kid Dan <laughs> real blood <laughs> yeah. you guys can use real blood <laughs> oh my god Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anne. My fact is that the viper fish has teeth that are so long it can't close its mouth properly or it would impale its own brain. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there are a few that have, though. Yeah, do you think? A yeah, the, the idiot kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, The Darwin Award viper fish. Exactly. But so have they sort of evolved like uh, the equivalent of a door stopper? They have. So basically they're very like very long and silver and they've got these lighty up spots along their um, along the bottom of their stomach and then they have these huge teeth that kind of pierce upwards from their jaw. Um, and luckily it doesn't impede their hunting because to hunt it basically just swims around with its mouth open until it finds prey. Right. It can unhinge its jaw and rotate its skull so when it finds prey it just basically swims straight at it and then it clamps its teeth shut like a cage and holds them in its mouth and then eats them. Mm. Mm. It can close its mouth. so But the it... teeth are coming out so it's not like making a seal. So it kind of like having a, huge, a, a very extreme overbite but Yeah, because I know there's another fish called the common fang tooth mm. um, which as its name might suggest has fangy teeth and what they have is they have special sockets on either side of their brain so that when they close uh -huh. their mouth, their teeth go into those sockets. Well, that Isn't is that smart. amazing? Yeah. It's so pre 
precise with the pockets. I think like if you got punched in the jaw and it was slightly dislocated, the first time you tried to shut your mouth, it would then miss the holes and yeah. pierce you in the brain. That would be, mm. that's why there's no boxing in the fang tooth and community. I think that's yeah. correct, yeah. But Viperfish is really cool. So as well as being able to get its prey in this cage, um, it can expand its stomach so it can swallow prey that's 50% bigger than itself. Oh, wow. Which is That's so cool. amazing. So I just think whenever you say, oh, I can eat my own body size of this, yeah. well, he can. Very unsubtle, though, if you're invited to a dinner party and you know sometimes you have a meal before you go and you just fake it and just mm-hmm. say, no, 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 I'm, yeah, 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 starving, starving. <laughs> you're actually really full. Can't hide that. You've yeah. got 50% more body weight coming Hello. through the door. <laughs> um, goldfish. Oh, yeah. Have teeth. Right. Can't believe it. How do you think they eat? I just mm. thought they swallowed uh, things that didn't need chewing. Well, they eat like little fishy flakes. They're not. Yeah, they kind of dissolve like, in the water. Kind of like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you open their mouth, you can't see it, but the teeth are at the back of the throat. Ooh. They just have a set of teeth that do all the <laughs> oh, old crunching. Clever. Yeah, right that at the is. back. Yeah, that'll often happen. And I always think, how does that do you sort of contract your throat as a fish? Because lots of fish have it, don't they? This teeth mm. in the throat thing. Yeah. It seems like it'd be very uncomfortable. But what's really cool is if you have goldfish at yeah. home right now, go and have a look in your little uh, little aquarium mm. that you have. Look at the bottom, because what they'll do is they often lose teeth and they, and they grow new ones. Mm. And so either you can catch your goldfish in the act of literally spitting its tooth out... Or look at the bottom, there'll be little teeth. You should say how often they do, because I worry that someone's going to sit in front of their goldfish tank staring at it for days on end, Every waiting. seven minutes. <laughs> if you have a pet Pacific link cod, oh, yeah. um, then you might be able to do that, because they gain and lose, on average, 20 teeth every day. Such a what? Yeah, so every day, 20 of the teeth fall out, and 20 new ones grow in their place. Amazing. Nice. They are also probably too big for your, your um, fish tank, aren't they? I think they're about five feet long. Oh, they Depends, are. obviously, on the size of your fish tank. They, they could fit in my pond. Yeah. If they kind of <laughs> fed Spirals. themselves in half. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have you seen the really horrible sheep's head fish? If you haven't seen it, Google it, but it's pretty gross. It's wow. basically got, like, just human teeth. It's like a big gummy smile. With It's very unpleasant. And it's not nice human teeth, is it? It's sort of like someone who hasn't cleaned their teeth for 20 years. It's, sort of... it's really disconcerting when you see a fish that doesn't have the face of a fish. Yeah. I, there's a, if anyone, I don't know if it's still there, I don't know the lifespan, but about seven years ago, I was in a restaurant in Bow Road, uh, in a Chinese <laughs> restaurant. They had an aquarium, and there was a fish there with a face of a dog. It just had a dog's head. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. Dog is fish? This, is this one of those restaurants where you go in and you choose the fish you want them to cook because I reckon if it is it probably is still there (laughs) (laughs) I'll have the dog face please (laughs) to be fair it is possible that maybe a dog was looking through the other side of the the tank was it a fellow diner's pet (laughs) you you can see fish that have human looking teeth as well what's it called the paku Paku. wait you mean as well as the one that Anne's mentioned oh is that the paku one he's a sheep mine's a sheep's head fish but that might be the official name Mm, apparently there are more fish than you would think with like human looking teeth yeah but the one that scared me the most, I didn't know ducks could have teeth on their beaks. <laughs> you Can see, they? Yeah, the goosander duck. Not only that, he lives in the UK. They're everywhere. I'm now terrified of this duck. The goose, that would be a great animated uh, cartoon for Lou Sanders to do. you got yeah. the goosanders, <laughs> which say Seanigan, Josh Widdicombe, and <laughs> goosanders. Looking up this lineup really well. I was thinking, oh, what did you see in the park? Goosander duck? Oh, really? Two things? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Just the one with all the teeth. Um, the paku we mentioned a few seconds ago, they mm. um, supposedly can bite human testicles off. 
Lovely. They're invasive. They were, I think you get them in like Papua New Guinea or somewhere. And they have come into the Northern Hemisphere more recently. And whenever they catch one, it's always in the news. It's like testicle biting fish right. in the Thames or whatever. <laughs> really? Uh, and I think it's not true. They're vegetarian, so they eat nuts. Um, and okay. the story that goes. Make sense. <laughs> the story goes that someone with particularly nut-like testicles yep. was standing by the water in Papua New Guinea. That's some urinating. swollen balls that person has got. If they've got the consistency <laughs> of a nut, it, it depends what kind of nut. Are there any nuts that are as soft as testicles out there? <laughs> no, this does sound like one incident, and it's similar to a man going to a hospital saying, "I don't know how my penis got inside this vacuum cleaner." But... <laughs> <laughs> it's an invasive species of Henry Hoover's. Yeah. <laughs> they supposedly eat penises. Uh, I think it is, there's a little bit of that. I think there was one story of some people in Papua New Guinea and one person possibly had their genitals bitten by this fish. Mm. Uh, and it has since kind of... Uh, but what now, was he doing with that fish? Is he was question. urinating by the side of the lake. What was, yeah, that, right. was that, there was a story, a scary story about fish that would swim up your urine stream. Yeah. Yeah. Is that real? No. no. I feel no. like they're not. Can we just establish that there's a big difference? And I feel like tabloids often do this as well in headlines, then you read mm. the text. And James, you may have just done it, between bitten and bitten off. And I think it's, it's much less scary to have something bite your arm. Than to have mm. a bite off your arm, for instance. Yeah. Same um, with testicles, I would argue as well. Yeah, probably is the same. I think what I'm saying is that there was a very small little nibble on this man's <laughs> genitals. Mm. And it, it made since, the national news. Yeah, it snowballed into since. whenever the Paku comes to town, everyone's like, that's the ball eating The fish. other option is that he was bit on the balls by a human and had to quickly come up with an excuse for his wife and went, no, it was the fish that has human teeth. That did it. <laughs> yeah. It's called the, uh, the sheep's yeah. head. Yeah. <laughs> because someone's human has bitten his balls yep. he's gone no no it's a fish and she's like well you can see the teeth marks yeah. they're human they're clearly human teeth <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah the paku it's the paku yeah. not only are you having an affair you're having an affair with someone who gives very bad blowjobs <laughs> I was reading about a different type of mouths that fish can have mm. oh yeah uh, you can have a superior mouth or an inferior mouth Okay, um, what's your criteria? You know what that is? No. Can you guess what it is? A superior and an inferior. One's on um, top of your head, I suppose. It's on top of your head? Well, because if it's superior, I feel like it's on the top. How many fish have you seen where the mouth is <laughs> above the eyes? Oh, look, we've said that I, I bet there are some fish where the mouth is above that, the eyes. That was an upside down fish <laughs> you were looking at. <laughs> Turn it around. It was my dead goldfish. <laughs> is uh, it? You're, you're more or less there, in fairness. A superior mouth is basically, imagine a smiling fish. Mm -hmm. yeah. And imagine a frowning fish for an inferior mouth. Oh, so it's like, like whether it turns up, up or down. Yeah, precisely. And right. if you have a superior mouth and you're a smiling fish, then you usually would feed on the surface. So you might get insects from the uh, surface see, of the like water. that's like turning your spoon around, like precisely, go up or go yeah. down. <laughs> and if you're an inferior mouth, you're probably a bottom feeder. As mm -hmm. in you're getting stuff off the floor. Yeah. Uh, and they have terminal mouths like goldfish, which is just at the front so it's neither a smile nor a frown mm. and they're usually omnivores they'll eat all sorts of stuff oh, that's right. it's quite interesting that if you look at a fish and you see whether it's smiling or frowning you can tell how it eats yes. it means you can't tell their mood no you can't because imagine that's... if you're a really grumpy pessimistic fish but you've got the superior mouth and you're like oh, everyone thinks I'm so jolly <laughs> having the worst day <laughs> we've never had really talk about narwhals before oh, oh yeah and um, they're Pretty. a toothed whale Count as a toothed whale. That's one big tooth? That's it's on just, Yeah. It's where wow. they think unicorns, the idea for unicorns right. came from. They found these narwhal tusks and they were like, wow, this must be from a horse. Okay, yeah. right. 
But not only is it one big tooth, it's their only tooth. Yeah. And it's actually their left tooth. Um, <laughs> their left tooth. It's their left canine. <laughs> oh. So they all have oh. a right canine that doesn't erupt mm. in their mouth. In fact, occasionally you'll see an narwhal where its right one has erupted and it's got a double double horn yeah, thing going right. on. That's cool. Um, That's cool. Is it like mostly the males have really long ones? Yeah, females that... tend not to have them actually. Really? At all. And what's the, do we know what's sort of like the evolutionary reason for them retaining just one? I think if males one... have them, it feels like it's sexual selection. Uh. It does, but again, bizarrely, given they're quite prominent, we really don't know and they've mm. looked at lots of things. They thought maybe they use it as an ice pick um, oh, yeah. or as a tool for echolocation. And or sort I, of like a cocktail stick for, you know, how you put <laughs> sausages and pineapples on and cheese yeah. and so on. But then yeah. that would only be for catering, because if it was on your tooth, you couldn't get it in your mouth. That's true. Oh, That's, yeah, but you might bring it to your to the yeah. mate that you're trying to... Oh, yeah, yeah. be like, look what I've got for you. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's sexy, Dan, if um, your partner has a really long tooth they attach some pineapple and cheese on and feed it directly into your mouth? Is that what, what does it for you? You know she's got that. You're not signed up to my OnlyFans. I thought you... Is that the biggest tooth oh, in nature? Oh, it is big. How long can they get to? I feel like they can get to a couple of metres, can't I think, they? Yeah, I reckon mm. it must be. It's about half their body length. Yeah, because tusks are not teeth. Tusks are keteran. Keteran? Uh, no. Um, Keratin. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I have a word with my drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> it's doing nothing for me. <laughs> my hair looks amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'm being accused of poaching. What's going on? There? <laughs> uh, the only thing, other thing, could be possibly like other large whales that have got teeth but I reckon mm. I reckon that would be the biggest mm. yeah it's got to be up there yeah just on the subject of fish teeth um, I came across actually a while ago and I've been looking for a chance to mention it an old Russian folk tale of a beautiful young woman who's married to a really disgusting man that she hates and sounds she sounds like my marriage <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how long that continues to be true in this story. <laughs> and so to put him off having sex with her, she puts a fish head into her vagina mm-hmm. um, so that every time, you know, he's up for it, he's like, oh, what are all these teeth? I guess it's one of these goldfish with the teeth well, heads. That's the paku. Uh, it's the paku. It's a paku head, it specifies. Um, and then she says, what, you idiot? All women have this. Oh, you don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. But that's what everyone's doing. And so he, he never gets to um, have sex with her. Oh, wow. Oh, that's a shame. It's a really sad story for him. It is. Rather. And for her, who's got a fish. <laughs> yeah. Places where you shouldn't have fish. She's come a bit worse off, yeah. Um, if she'd have put a sucker mouth catfish up her valley, uh-huh. it might have been better because they have bendy teeth. Okay. Uh, the first fish that we found that have got bendy teeth. Really? Yeah. Because they scrape stuff off rocks. And um, if they had hard non-bendy teeth, then they might fall off or they might break or whatever. Uh, Uh, And they reckon that probably more fish have them as well, but we've never found them before. So that might be quite nice. Some bendy teeth. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, she'd be so annoyed if she got that one fish. She's like, oh, I'm into this. Vagina dentata is common in folklore, isn't it? And is Mm. it... um, Who's the... um, Who's the god in Moana? It's Maui. 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 Does he get... Eaten oh, yes. by some vagina yeah, or something? Yeah, I think he does. I think that's not oh, featuring yeah. the live-action Moana remake that Disney are currently <laughs> working on. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that a book club in America has finally finished reading Finnegan's Wake, 
after 28 years of monthly meetups. 28 years. 28 years. It's impressive. It's incredible. They started in 1995. There was between 10 and 30 people who would show up to these monthly book clubs. And um, Finnegan's Wake is a very complicated, unreadable book. (laughs) Uh, They decided, rather than getting through the whole thing and doing it in one book club, they would take it two pages at a time. That proved to be, I think, a bit too much. So they then (laughs) brought it down to one page per book club. And they've been doing this. They did it, uh, you know, through the pandemic. They've been doing it over Zoom. They keep meeting up. And um, yeah, they finally just got to the end. But it's being reported as the end. But as the man who runs the book club, uh, a guy called Jerry, pointed out, it ends on a sentence that is a continuous loop sentence, which means you come right back to the beginning of the book. So they're just starting from page one again now. What a horrible realization that must have been in the last session. (laughs) The last day, pop the champagne. (laughs) Thank God, I never have to see these awful people again. That's amazing. But it's amazing. Like the people who've been in and out of this group, one guy dropped out of the group for 20 years and came back. They were still lost, but then I suppose everyone is. I think they got through fifteen chapters in that time. Yeah, Um, yeah, that's the whole point of it, isn't it? It's a completely impenetrable book. Even people that you would consider to be those who love literature and would like be snooty and say no, it's actually a masterpiece, all just say it's just lots of words <laughs> no one can agree like who the main characters are it's what amazing. the plot is yeah, yeah have you have you dipped into it no finnegan's weight no of all choices stuff i don't know if anna has but no um yeah i think it's amazing that even after all this time they've read it for 28 years they won't be able to say what happened because yeah. no one knows what happened <laughs> no it's just that's so amazing isn't it's it? mad it's and almost like an endurance sport rather than a hobby now isn't it like 28 years but this is yeah. the thing they're not like alone in being a book club that has done this mm. they just happen to have possibly gone the longest. There's a guy called Sam Sloat, who's a historian. He's an expert at Trinity College Dublin on Joyce. He That's what he looks into. And um, yeah, he, he was reading the book for 15 years. Uh, you know, there was other groups that they all go into like just over 10 years, but this is the longest one so far. Think of all the books that you've missed out on in that time that actually make sense. Yeah, that's mm. true. You can't read all the books in your lifetime. Yeah. You might yeah. as well stick with ones. The Hungry Caterpillar. Absolute banger. Yeah. <laughs> you get through that many times in one meeting. <laughs> but I think this is what Joyce wanted. I think he wanted people to dedicate their lives to reading just him, to That's analyzing quite him. That's a big move, isn't it? Like, no, you'll be my book and only my book. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a statement about what you think of yourself. Well, he's kind of yeah. done it with certain people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, your fact, sorry, I meant to say, Dan, is, um, is wrong. Yeah, I noticed that. A spelling mistake. A spelling, bit yeah. of a spelling mistake, yeah. Oh. Well, technically... Um, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. a bit of a punctuation yeah. error, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I put an apostrophe S, yes. An apostrophe. I'd actually never noticed this until I went to the Wikipedia page. There's no mm. apostrophe in it. Um, so it's not the wake of Finnegan. It's Finnegan's, plural, wake. It's like Finnegan's comma, wake, exclamation mark. Um, and yeah. uh, there's a character called Finnegan in it, and I believe he's being resurrected. So it's like he's waking up. So shouldn't he be the main character? I haven't read it either, but I would assume if it's called Finnegan's Wake and you've got a Finnegan. Well, there are quite a few Finnegans think. Are there as well. Are there? Oh, really? I thought the Finnegans was just referring to was like pluralized to be confusing and refer to like Irish people generally. But are there multiple Finnegans? Well, in there the are book? multiple Finnegans. Oh. I think the the collective Irish group being mm. called Finnegans is the most common 
uh, explanation for the lack of apostrophe. Right. Um, some people think it's so that the word wake can mean the awakening and also the wake as in after someone dies. So it gives you a nice little bit of uncertainness um, there. Mm. Some people think it was a fuck up by Samuel Beckett who did. Who wrote, um, <laughs> Wait, sorry? Samuel Beckett So um, was his proofreader? No. Well, Joyce kind of... Um, sp- what do you call it when someone speaks it to you? Dictated. dictated. Yeah, ch- uh, Beckett dictated it. Really? Yeah, right. or certainly some of it. Are you mixing transcribing and dictating? Oh, perhaps. What's so, the difference? So you would dictate. You dictate to someone and then they transcribe what you're saying. Oh, yeah. I see. Oh, yes. I see. Yeah. yeah. So okay. I think Joyce is. Joyce was dictating. Beckett, yeah. was, Beckett transcribing. was transcribing. Excellent point. Just Maybe. making you five minutes in the edit. <laughs> Maybe they weren't, though. Maybe it was always the other way around and Beckett wrote it. I'm like, don't put my name on that. So. <laughs> I don't want to be cursed. A famous yeah. story where Beckett is dictating and there's a knock on the door and James Joyce says, come in. And Beckett just writes, come in, in the uh, middle yes. of the story. Oh, really? So that was from a, um, a biography of Joyce, um, which where he interviewed Beckett and Beckett said this happened. Mm. But if you look in the text and just control F, you don't have to read the whole thing. But if you look in the text and look for the phrase, come in, there is no place where it's just like an interjection where it doesn't belong. Mm. So either Beckett made it up or maybe it actually happened and then later on he thought, you know what, that was stupid. I'm going to take that out. Mm. Right. I'm not sure what happened. Or an editor was like... I don't yeah. think there was much of an editor because there was loads of typos in all of Joyce's work, wasn't yeah. there? And that, yeah. that's something that's really interesting because there's been... A, I was reading an article where they're saying that basically the way you can read Joyce now, mm. people have been trying to make sense of this book so much mm. that they've employed different ways of cleaning it up in order to make sense of it. So there's a version out there where people have taken all the typos out so it kind of reads a bit more smoother and you're not going, what the hell is this word? Yeah. There's a digital version now where basically everything is hyperlinked. Oh. Therefore, you can get an understanding <laughs> of everything and you find yourself using it as a repository of all knowledge. It's basically a weird encyclopedia where you just go, oh, cool, I'm now learning about this random thing by clicking That's... on it. So they keep trying to turn it into something useful. But it's not. <laughs> but it's not. Yeah. Ultimately, it's just not in its own thing. And the words that he made up in it, there's a hmm. there's a hundred letter long word on the first page, which <laughs> is the sound of a thunderclap that was heard at the fall of the Garden of Eden. Um, Are you going to give us the word? Yeah, I want to hear the word. Yeah, it's... Um that's close, but not that was quite. pretty good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I felt like there was a storm outside. I would argue that Boom does the same job. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been your first thing as an editor. Right. Boom. Opening words. Life would be more difficult for the Venga boys if no one had invented the word boom and they had to do this four times. But that's not... Much less catchy. Uh, it was reused by Sylvia Plath in the Bell Jar, that word. That word, right. Yeah, yeah. Can I see it written down? Yeah, it's there. Are you thinking about using that in your next children's book, Anne? Because <laughs> it's in, the, in the title. It depends if you're on a word count for being paid number of words or whether you're paid number of letters. Yeah. That's... Useful words as well that he made up, um, which we've already mentioned before, but quark. Quark is from Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. The, uh, the scientific yeah. word it's from there's a line in it that goes three quarks from muster mark mm. uh and then quarks can cluster together in threes uh to form mm. other yeah so that's that's where but i think murray gelman wanted to call them quarks mm. yeah uh, and he always had this idea of they're called quarks and then he saw the word quark in finnegan's wake where it clearly rhymes with mark but even though he spelt it in the same way that joyce did he always pronounced it quark 
Do you think he really tediously corrected people whenever they referred to it? It's really interesting because I always call them quarks, mm-hmm. having studied physics, yeah. and I think 75% of physicists say quark rather than quark. So I can't they're... believe as many as 25% are doing the pretentious, this is what he wanted, quark pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, physicists. This is very like the laser loser, so laser is an acronym. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Like, forgotten what they like is. amplified. Yeah, and then someone's like, actually, the light's oscillating, so they should be called losers. But no, <laughs> didn't catch on. I never heard that. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that's great. Um, Joyce was particularly upset about World War Two, wasn't he? I know none of us liked it, but <laughs> it was a real bugbear for him because it interrupted the publication of his book, or he was worried it would get in the way. So, as, as discussed, he spent 17 years writing it, which is not that long when you consider how long it takes to read. Mm. But he was realising he was sort of getting close to the end in about 1936, and um, he was getting really stressed out about global conditions. At one point, he complained to a friend, look, the fact that the world is in such a bad state at the moment is really stressful for me because I find it so hard hard to write being so anxious about it and then when he handed in the manuscript in 1939 he said please hurry publishing it because war's going to break out and then no one will read my book anymore (laughs) that's not why (laughs) the thing is if you're going to spend how long 17 18 years writing Mm -hmm. it the chance of you it would have to be in the high end period of peace wouldn't it like there's no other time when you're not going to run into some war or other you're right Um, so I was looking at what the longest book to read like by by pages rather than complexity. Oh yeah. Um, so the longest novel in the Penguin classics and modern classics is In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is six volumes, three thousand six hundred and sixteen pages. Yeah. Yep. So in the time it would take you to read it, you could fly from London to Auckland and back again, and then to Barbados. But okay. only if you have you have to not take any breaks. And you have what, to read one yeah. page a minute for that entire time. One page a minute. Yeah. I bought a copy of that thinking I would read it, yeah. and it was absolutely massive. Yeah. And I started. And then I realised that I only had the first volume. (laughs) If this is the first volume, there is no way in the world I'm going to read this. Years ago, I thought I'd read Oliver Twist. And I said to someone, oh, I've just finished Oliver Twist. (laughs) And they said, oh, did you like the bit about Dodger's trial? And I said, what trial? And I'd had an abridged version and hadn't realised. I missed out loads. You read the the transcript of the musical theatre version. (laughs) Oliver exclamation mark. I love the songs. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You read as part of Fish Research, or you started reading, Curious if you finish Les Mis God I started reading so many things as part of this research Mm. in fact I started reading The Woman in White a few weeks ago and still haven't got Ah, to the end of that but yeah Les Mis I got most of the way through it but I didn't finish it well I read Les Mis is 365 chapters so you can read one a day which is quite neat but not in a leap year or you can have a day off interesting James, have you ever thought about reading fiction for pleasure rather than for the podcast? I think you might get to the end of more books. I really struggle. <laughs> I've got to say, I really struggle to read fiction for pleasure these days. Really? Yeah, because I read so much non-fiction for my job. Mm. I need like a year off. What you need is a book club because I yeah. started doing a book club and it Did does you force you to read. Yeah, and it forces you to uh, read, you know, things that you might not have, new books that have come out mm. that people have been is suggesting. Is that the idea of fiction that you're forced to read stuff and that's why you do it? It or? just it carves out the time for you to yeah. do it, which is interesting. Accountability. Yeah. Aren't you in the same book club as Andy, though? I think I've heard yeah. about some of the books. Is it just Andy's book every week? It <laughs> is. Yeah. It does feel like a post apocalyptic world that I'm living in every time what, what, we chat about what it. What was your best book you discovered through a book club? Uh, Sylvie Plath's The Bell Jar, which mm. I love her poetry and I've never read the book I've itself. I've never read Did book. you remember this? Yeah. I haven't read that book and so I was going off Wikipedia that this word was in it. <laughs> I think it is true, right? Weirdly, I don't remember the word, oh. but you know, you don't remember every detail, well, right? Well, you might remember a hundred letter word. <laughs> 
just what, assumed it was a typo. Well, no, but you know, also when you're on a deadline for book club, it's like fantastic. What a great word. To... <laughs> skip, skip, Zoom skip. me forward. It's like the fast lane. It's like a travelator. <laughs> Uh, they are good aren't you in a book club no I'm not but um, I think what I would like to be in one for is that discovering books that you might not know about so I've got some friends who are just so so good at book recommendations and really good at like personalising it to what you like to read so I read an article years ago saying that actually there's an argument that you shouldn't read books that win prizes and the argument being that if you say you're not into Russian high society and agriculture, why would you suddenly be so just because it won a prize? So actually it can put you off books. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually if you go in Are and you say- Are you describing War and Peace there? But what if you aren't into agriculture, aren't into Russian high society, but are into people being hit by trains? What well, do you- Then I reckon, there's, I reckon there's somewhere a bookshop where that's the category. <laughs> I hear Andy's podcast at qi.com email pinging. Furious, how dare you spoil the ending? <laughs> Um, well, that, that's good that we're bucking a trend a bit, you being in a book club, Dan, and I, in fact, am in a book club, mm. and Dan not, because it's extraordinary. I know we know that it's mostly women, but it's 88% of book clubs, in America at least, are all women. Yeah. And um, women generally read quite a lot more fiction mm. than men. And book clubs are so popular these days as well. I think since Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey's book club, yeah. they've shot up. I think there was a survey of women who read at least one book a month that found over half of them were in book clubs, which mm. makes sense because when you're reading that often, well, here's a, here's a really interesting thing. I went to a, um, a publishing party not too long ago, mm. and there was an author there who I'd met whose book came out the same time as mine. She had an American release. It was a fiction novel called Wayward. Brilliant. Um, mm. And she was a New York Times bestseller. And she's she's an Australian who moved over here. She's it's her first debut book. Mm. I said, how how you did, you weren't even in America? How did that happen? Book clubs. She said mm. publishers desperately try and put their books in positions to get them into book clubs because if you do, you're New York Times bestseller. Yes, you sell, you sell yeah. like thirty a time yeah. rather than they're just massive. Oh, and how do you what you go around like asking people are you in a book club? So you, you give away a lot of free books and stuff online as ebooks, and then it gets a reputation, and then book clubs pick it up. And Reese Witherspoon is the other massive book club in the in America. Oh, so do you yeah. mean big famous book yeah, clubs? Yeah. Sorry, you don't mean just like my book club. No, there uh, are people knocking. But probably them as well. Like just yeah. probably them as well. Yeah, just books that are like heavily marketed or promoted. Do you know where the biggest book club in the world is? The biggest in the world. In, okay. In Contender. China, right? Contender. I'm going to say Iceland because they're famously, they, they all write books and read novels. And Ooh, so yes. I feel like I should have checked all the book club counts, but I'm going with <laughs> volume. I'm going with the digital world. Book talk. So this is a, the book club version of TikTok. Oh, okay. Oh, so okay. they believe that book talk has sold 20 million books in 2021. Like it's wow. huge. So there's this huge Colleen trend of books Hoover, now. Right? Where they, yeah, and they'll say like, TikTok made, me, TikTok made me buy it. And it's like these books that just really drive through TikTok. So much so that they've launched the TikTok Book Awards this year. And what I love about this is because TikTok, I guess, is so many people, they're not just books that came out this year that were popular in one shop by one sort of person. Um, so they gave an award to Jane Austen. She got Revival. Really? Oh, <laughs> yeah. no so way. it's like really new stuff, really old stuff. Can it's I just ask, a big yeah, mix. sorry, for, for like older listeners, not myself, obviously, mm. but for other people who might not really know what TikTok is, mm. can you explain how that works? It's not just one book club where everyone reads the same no, thing. No, so TikTok is video sharing and I'm guessing everybody who uses the hashtag BookTok and can see what oh, they're talking about. So things sort of trend and build. Yeah. And you sort yeah. of find, and I guess what's nice about it is if you've read a book that you love it and no one else has you can find someone who's made a video and see what they say about it whereas if I've read one book and no one else I know has read it and to be fair sometimes I finish a book and I'll go on to Goodreads just to see what people have said and see if I agree with them oh yeah Yeah. me too (laughs) definitely especially when it's a good like twisty end and I'm like did I understand that properly (laughs) what actually happened (laughs) I'll go and check I have a um 
mental reasoning question for you. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Love these. Going back to Oprah's book club. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was founded in 1996. And yeah. her the idea was that it would be highbrow, quite highbrow literary options that she chose. So she had great books in there like William Faulkner, mm. Toni Morrison, Cormac mm. McCarthy. Um, so really good books over the years. And every time she makes a choice, it pretty much becomes a bestseller. Yeah. Um, it's like rockets to the top of the charts. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. I think it stopped in about 2010 or something. Okay. But whenever she chose a book, book sales actually after that decreased. Why? Oh. Do you mean book sales more generally? General book sales decreased. Okay, this is why. Everyone wanted to buy this one particular book. It went out of print really quickly and no one bought anything else because they were waiting for that one to come back into print. Interesting. Interesting. Not correct. Ah, Good pa- guess, though. Paper shortage. It used up so many trees that... Half of the Amazon, Oprah's responsible for destroying, actually. Yeah. Um, no, it's specifically about the fact that she chose quite highbrow options, but appealed to an audience that wouldn't necessarily be reading things like that all the time. Okay, so you're... So they spent more time reading? She got it. Oh. So, like, so rather than buying two books, you buy one and read it for two weeks. Say. Exactly. These people oh, who are buying, you know, three books a week and pacing through them, yeah. they're suddenly reading, you know, The Sound and the Fury oh, that's and fun. spending that's a few weeks really good. on it. So really everyone should be buying much shorter books and getting through more of them. How long's your book then? <laughs> 345 pages, okay. but it's a very big font. So. <laughs> My mar- mine's a children's book, so it's a bit shorter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the liquid in a can of beans is more likely to make you fart than the beans themselves. Okay, (laughs) good to know. Incredible. Useful. Useful knowledge. Yeah. Is it? Are you going to start rinsing all the liquid (laughs) off? No, I'm going to start chugging bean juice because I just want to be more farting. So this comes from an article on the website Serious Eats, and they partnered with Harvard's Science of Cooking program and looked at the fartiness of various beans and stuff like that and to see if there were any ways to decrease the effect. Uh, And they looked at various old wives' tales of how you do this, like you soak your beans for ages. This this would not be a can of beans, for instance. You might soak your beans for ages and then cook them in a certain way and see if that makes sense. I like the idea of someone soaking their Heinz baked beans. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone always soaks beans, so yeah. (laughs) Left them overnight. Um, It might be cooking them with bay leaves or something like this. Mm. Nothing really made any difference. Uh, But they looked at tinned beans and they did find, actually, that rinsed beans... Um, from a tin are 20% less farty than unrinsed and that the liquid you throw away is 30% fartier than the beans are themselves. Wow. And why? So it seems like it kind of seeps into the into the mm, juice right. and also they, the beans they kind of um, disintegrate mm-hmm, the longer they're in mm-hmm. there and the more farty ones are the ones that disintegrate the hard ones that you just kind of go straight through you they don't disintegrate mm. right and so yeah it's the fartiness seems to just get into the juice somehow that's so interesting yeah. I think some things probably work right like um, there are some things that could counteract the um, yeah the, the sure. fartiness there's kombu the Japanese seaweed that you get in like kombu dashi, um, it's an ingredient of that. And that has these enzymes that break down the sugars 
in beans when you eat them so the reason that beans make you fart is because you can't digest the stuff in them but the bacteria in your stomach can right and then the bacteria as it digests it releases these gases and i believe that kombu um, manages to break down those sugars so the bacteria doesn't have as much to eat and fart out correct Mm. and so if you add this seaweed to everything that might work might do hmm. give it a go i actually um you mentioned my book before i wrote about a guy who tried to stop um farts from being produced off the back of beans yeah right? he did yeah wonderfully a man called colin leakey um and colin leakey is the son of mary and lewis leakey yeah, who were yeah. the great anthropologists who discovered mm. all these hominid skeletons throughout history so he had seen a report of nasa trying to make beans that could be sent into space mm. and not produce flatulence so lose the fart stuff from beans and he thought yes that would be amazing to do because if you could invent a bean that gave you less farts you could have that in developing countries where they sometimes Sometimes, you know, Crohn's disease, for example, beans are meant to be avoided. Uh, so there's a lot of health implications if you have a lot of wind in you. So you thought, if I could invent a bean, that could be like a meat replacement. And then we could have safe eating that's going on for all these poorer countries. Okay. So he spent a lifetime doing that. And he did, inv- he did invent two beans, which are on sale and have been sent over, which are nice. meat replacements and less flatulence. So he was a scientist who did great things. But my favorite thing is he patented an invention called the flatometer which was a device that slots into your rectum and there's a tube coming out that connects to a balloon on the other end uh, and you tuck the balloon into your shirt pocket and <laughs> you just collect these. These are these real inventions. Yeah, it's bigger, bigger, bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like the uh, viper fish. At the end uh, of the day, you're like, oh. <laughs> but, Worst what? children's party ever. <laughs> yeah, the but, balloon what? dog you get given. Yeah. So I was reading that they have measured how much volume a fart has uh. and they did it by feeding everyone beans and using a rectal catheter to catch the fart would you like to guess the mills how many mills your average fart it's oh. hard isn't it because it's a gas so it spreads out quite a lot so you would think it would be quite a high mills yeah interesting 572 wow. what i was gonna say more like 20 you're kind of in the middle 90 so we'll fit in your airport hand luggage Not really in the middle. <laughs> i suppose it doesn't count as a liquid does it unless you've done a little bit of follow-through <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, another useful thing scientists have invented, speaking of following through, a useful thing scientists have invented is a machine that listens to your bottom and distinguishes a fart from a shart. Ah. And I would I, argue you would know without a machine whether you, that's happened. You do usually know, don't you? But often... often um, but do they tell you before or after? <laughs> it actually tells you when it's happened. Um, <laughs> Wait, is it more for when someone's done it, but you're with them and you say, was that a fart or a shark? And they say, no, it's just a fart. And then you go, let me get my machine out. <laughs> get to the bathroom, you filth pig. Um, it's meant to also detect more than that as well. So it's the idea is that you have this device. It's called the, um, and listen carefully, the Synthetic Human Acoustic Reproduction Testing the shot um yeah and basically it's to give early warning of like colorectal cancers Uh uh, things like that bowel cancers because it's thought that you might have changes in your flatulent sounds or in your poo Mm. sounds and if it listens it might then say oh your poos sound a bit different these days or your farts sound a bit weird have you Mm. thought about getting checked out and so researchers listen to many hundreds of hours of audio of various pooing and farting noises and then tagged them correctly to train the machine Wow. And it can now identify whether something's urination, flatulence, solid defecation, or diarrhea 98% of the time. Hmm. So it's 
It's not at the super advanced level yet, I suppose. It's still at the stage of distinguishing a wee from a poo. But yeah. It's not that advanced. If you play them George Osborne's new podcast, it does say it's diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking who I could slam of the podcast community. You thought... would, it, would it attack us or yeah? yeah. <laughs> Good luck when he's on next week. <laughs> um, how much do you think the cheapest can of beans you could buy in the UK was in 1996. Oh, 1996. Yeah. Like 4p? Yeah, a couple of p. A couple of p? Yeah. The answer is negative 2p. <laughs> they paid you to take them. Yeah. Why? I'll have 2 million. Oh, did, you, did you get like money back for returning the tin or something? No, so this you... was this was just a crazy moment in in retail where um, it was called the Bean Wars. And basically, they were just competing and competing to make the price lower to win the competition. That it got to a point where this one place... Which was supermarkets, called, right? Yeah, supermarkets. And this place called Sanders Supermarket basically had a deal whereby... Uh, surprisingly enough, it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I sold too many beans in my past. But it went so low that they went into the negative. So if the beans were part of a shopping uh, pile that you had, they took the 2p off. Mm. So off your final bill, if you were just buying the can of beans, they gave you 2p. But you could only do it for one tin. That was their thing. But there was a point where you were paid <laughs> to leave a supermarket is... with a can no, of beans. This is like when you, want to buy, wow. when you want a sandwich and it's better to get the meal deal. Than, so you end up having to like buy a drink as well. And then your sandwich yeah. is cheaper. It is, but it's very rare that you can just take the drink from the meal deal and they'll pay you for it, the difference that you would have saved. It's I mean, incredible. That is unbelievable. Te- Tesco I, I was think... selling them at 7p. It's Do you think like, people yeah. went around lots of different supermarkets what, collecting but, as many 2p's yeah. as they but could? But if it's 2p and one tin, it's quite limited. So they probably lose less money than they would from like halving the price of like ketchup or toilet yeah. roll. Totally. The, the yeah. price of petrol or bus fare to get to the shop is going to be more than 2p. So it's false economy to go around the country to all of these shops. <laughs> but it, feel, it would feel nice to get your 2p off and get your free beans. Mm. Yeah. It would, God, I'm the kind of person who would just always do that for no particular reason. Don't even need that many beans. Just going in with different hats on to get more beans. Yes. I'm back again. Um... Heinz, I was on the Heinz factory website because mm. they made beans. Yeah. And do you know the average number of beans in a Heinz tin? Oh, well, what uh, size? The normal size. There are three sizes. Okay, you're, you're class. <laughs> wow, three. Oh, yeah, you've got those mini ones. Got the mini one, the full one, which is like 200, 400, and then you've got the snack pot. Oh, you're so right. Yeah, sorry. I mean the, the normal <laughs> ones. <laughs> Showing you too much what I eat for lunch. <laughs> and Anne mixes it up every yeah. day with a different one. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to mix it up and have two small pots instead of one big pot. Um... 572. Oh. That's a good guess. Which tight end did we establish? Uh, it's the, the, the 400. <laughs> the one everyone knows. Yeah. <laughs> the not, mainstream one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not your edgy, left field, yeah. trendy one. It's so hipster these days, Anne. Okay, in the standard size of beans. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't believe what? you now don't know the answer, <laughs> given your knowledge. You've bought so much time. James, how many did you say? 572. Okay, I'm going to go... I feel so invested in this now. I'm going to go 424. Nice. Oh, okay, then 365. And you have one, so oh, it's worth <laughs> such a swat. I like Dan's idea of 365. It's like every day I'll have one bean yeah. and read one chapter of Les Miserables. <laughs> Um, it's 465 on average. But the reason I say that is because in 2019, councillor Steve Smith, um, in a break from cheating at cricket, uh, <laughs> got back 
I do think it's a different guy, probably. Um, he got back from a residence meeting late at night, thought, I'll crack into a can of Heinz baked beans, and it was full of sauce and contained one bean. Oh, <laughs> no. I remember that. How crazy that I remember that. Do you remember the story? Yeah, I remember that story coming out. Really? Yeah, imagine how farty he would have been I the know. next day. Oh, my God. Hungry and farty. It's the worst combo. Um, I was, very randomly, I was in, a, in an office the other day, and in through the door came... Greg Wallace, who's in MasterChef, oh, yeah. that oh. guy, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, he just he was uh, like I, there was no connection between us two being there. Um, he came and walked up to me, just walked up to me and said, "Want to hear a bean fact?" And I what? went, Wait. and I was like, "Okay, yeah, sure." <laughs> I went, "Oh, I must listen to fish." And he went, "So at the bean factories, they have a laser which tests out good beans, yeah. and if they don't like it, they flick the bean off." And he was like, "So they have a bean flicker at the uh, at the thing," and I was like, "Oh, great, that's so cool. We yeah. could we could use that on fish or QI." And he went, "Are you connected to that?" <laughs> so- I would have assumed this guy's really into food facts, you know, and he just tells anyone. He literally opened a door, looked me in the face, walked up to me and said, do you want to hear a bean fact? Of course I'm going to assume. He yes. knows I, was, I genuinely would never have assumed that. <laughs> do people just come up to you randomly? If it's Greg Wallace, I would have thought, he knows he's famous. He's like, I can get away with doing this to a randomer. I can't I just believe I come across as the weird one in this story. <laughs> you come across as very self-involved. Oh, it's all about my podcast. <laughs> Greg Wallace is a bean guy. That's <laughs> Talks about so beans. weird. It does yeah. sound like a dream. That yes. is bizarre that it he happened. does that, though. <laughs> it happened. Um, would you like to hear a horrifying fart fact? Now yeah. we're approaching the winter yeah. months. Yeah. So you know when on a cold day, if you breathe out, you can see your breath? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if you fart loudly enough, you can see your fart you're on a kidding, cold day. Really? But not if you're wearing trousers. Yes, okay. <laughs> so it's only a problem for, like, winning the poo. That yeah. Is like winning the poo. <laughs> uh. And I've, I think I've read that yeah. story. Winnie the poo on a windy day. That's what that was about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yet another reason not to go out in public naked, eh? <laughs> I never realised that. There so- must be footage on YouTube of people doing that, right? I haven't searched it, but feel free to... I will. I will. I rather think it might be on more specialist channels than YouTube. Back to Dan's OnlyFans. Yeah, that's a new whole threat for me. Yeah, (laughs) Wikifart. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. We have now reached the buy-an period of the podcast today. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Anne. We'll see you again soon. Uh, If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, you can find us on our social media accounts. I'm on Instagram at at Schreiberland. James? Uh, Still on Twitter at James Harkin. Anne? Uh, My Instagram is at Anne Miller Books. And uh, if you want to get us as a group, Anna, where do they go? You can email podcast.qi.com. And you can also go to our website, nosuchthingasafish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Do check them out. There's also bits of merch. You can find Club Fish. All sorts of fun to be had there. Or just come back here next week. We'll be back with another episode. And we'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.